If you are just joining us, or even if you've been here for the last uh, handful of weeks, we are going through a series in the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. And let me just give you kind of a, a quick recap of what is going on, what the context is here. In Daniel, God's people, the people of Israel, are in exile. God had warned them, and now uh, God has brought judgment upon them, and they are taken several hundred miles away from their home in Jerusalem. They're taken into Babylon, modern-day Iraq, and they are living in a culture that's not theirs, with gods that are not theirs, with a government that is not theirs, with values and beliefs and practices that are not theirs, and they are going to be there for, for most of them for their whole life having to learn what it looks like to live in exile away from your homeland, your people, your values, your God, all of that. And the Bible uses Babylon or uses the metaphor of exile and applies it to Christians also, saying that we are living in a city, we are living in a world that doesn't share the beliefs, values, practices, God that is the God that we serve. And that we are not ultimately in our home. That we are in some ways, not identical, but in some ways in exile. And the kinds of questions that they had to ask and wrestle with are, in many ways, the kinds of questions that we have to ask and wrestle with. What does it mean to be faithful in a world that doesn't share your beliefs, values, God, and practices? What does it mean to be faithful? And how can you be faithful how can you live a lifetime of faithfulness in a culture, in a world that's not faithful? How do, we, how do we do that? What does it look like? Those are the same kinds of questions that they had to wrestle with and ask. And this book is written to give strength to people in that place and written to give guidance to people in that place. So if you find yourself at all asking any of those questions of how do I stay faithful, what does it mean to be faithful in my job and in my relationships and in my neighborhood and in this city? What does it mean to raise faithful kids? What does it look like to be and live faithfully? If you ask any of those kinds of questions, the book of Daniel is written to help give you strength and to help give you guidance. And that is what we have been exploring and are continuing to do. And one of the, the hard things about living in our culture or living in this world or one of the hard things about just being faithful, one of the hard things is that we can sometimes miss the big picture. We can sometimes miss the big picture. And if we miss the big picture, then it's hard to actually be faithful. I was thinking about this and remembering my my wedding, and uh, we, my, my family kind of did all the food for my wedding, and it wasn't, it wasn't an expensive wedding. So when I say did all the food, they're not like professional people. We, we were going to have uh, all, all sorts of different things, but I remember we were going to have uh, little mini sandwiches, and my mom wanted to put, um, and mom, if you're watching this, uh, it's, it's okay, but she wanted to put, I can't remember if it was like mayonnaise and mustard or something like that on every table. And people were going to be seated at tables during the wedding because we were, everyone was at tables and then the ceremony just turned into the reception right there in the same place, okay? And she wanted to put mini like uh, mayonnaise and mustard at every table. I was like, I do not want mayonnaise and mustard dishes on the tables while the ceremony is happening. I don't want to do that. And I was very clear with her. I said, do not do that. <laughs> I don't know if we've ever talked about this. Um, she usually watches online. So, um, so then came for the wedding day. Showed up. No 
what do you think was on the freaking tables? It's mayonnaise and mustard. And uh, I, I think Sarah came to me and was like, there's mayonnaise and mustard on the tables. It's like, oh my gosh, oh no. Okay, you know what? The wedding was awesome. I don't think I ate any of the food. We had a great time. We've been married almost 15 years, and there hasn't been one time that we had a fight or a conflict. And I said, you know why? It's because of the mayonnaise and mustard. Our wedding started off bad. Our marriage started off bad, and because of that. So here, here's why I bring that up. Sometimes, what if I let the mayonnaise and mustard ruin my whole wedding day? What if, and I, you know, I'm kind of joking around about it, but what if when I look back at our wedding and we look back at the pictures and I couldn't even rejoice in it because of the mayonnaise and mustard? Because of one small thing I focus in on or zoom in on and it takes away the big picture of what's actually going on. Now, life is often actually like that, that we sometimes zoom in on an aspect of life and it messes our view up from the big picture, that a hard season in life messes you up from seeing the big picture of what God has called you to and what God's doing in the world. Maybe it's the news or things that are happening in the world or in our city, and we zoom in on that. And when we zoom in on that, it changes our vision, and we interpret everything through that lens and miss the bigger picture of what God's doing. We can have certain things that we really love. It's not necessarily negative things, certain things that we really love and enjoy, but that becomes everything. And then we become distracted by that or too focused on that, and it takes away the big picture. We can have certain pain or problems or suffering in our life, and I'm not saying it doesn't matter, but it, we zoom in on that, and it takes away the big picture. And one of the things that will make it hard to be faithful is if we miss the big picture. If we miss the big picture of life, of the world, of our calling in the world, of who God is, if we miss the big picture, it will be hard to be faithful because then we will live from whatever that story is that we're zoomed in on. If it's something negative, then we will live from that and miss everything else. If it's something that we really enjoy and it's positive, we'll focus in on that. Jesus calls that being distracted by the cares of the world. We get too busy or we enjoy something too much and it overtakes everything else that God has called us to. This can happen with so many different things that we zoom in on and then miss the big picture that God actually has for us in our life. And so to be faithful, we need the right view. We need the whole view. We need to see the big picture of what is happening. Now, we're going to be in chapter 5 of the book of Daniel. And throughout all of these chapters so far, there's been some repetition. There's been some repeated themes of who God is, of what the world is like, of what we are called to. There's been repeated themes that have shown up in every chapter. And so as we get to Daniel 5, it once again has all those themes in there, and it will help us to see the big picture. So what I want to do today is as we look at Daniel 5, we're going to look at some of the themes that have been out throughout the whole book. We'll look at it from Daniel 5, but it's the same big picture that's happened over and over and over again. And it's interesting when you read Daniel, why is there so much repetition? Because it's helping us. It's helping us to see if these things are repeated, here's what you should expect things to be like. Here's what you should expect. And here's what you should expect God to be like. Here's who you should expect God to be in the middle of all of these things. And here's what you should expect to do in the middle of all these things. So it helps give us really the big picture 
of our calling in our life as these themes are repeated over and over again. So what do we need to see? What is the big picture? Let's read this chapter together, and then we'll go through it and see what it is that we need to see about the world, what it is that we need to see about ourselves, and what it is we need to see about God. Here it is, Daniel chapter 5. King Belshazzar, by the way, don't get that confused as I was reading this with uh, my family this week. Daniel's name that was given to him, his name is Daniel, but they were all given Babylonian names. Also, his name that he was given was Belteshazzar with a T. This is Belshazzar, so don't get that confused. But King Belshazzar held a great feast. So Nebuchadnezzar's dead, by the way. So this is probably about 20 years after the story that we read last week when Nebuchadnezzar goes crazy and then uh, he repents and uh, turns to God. This is his grandson and his successor, uh, that 20-year gap in between. Don't know. It didn't, doesn't really talk about all that stuff, but here's what happens. King Belshazzar held a great feast for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine in their presence. Under the influence of the wine, always good things that happened after that, Belshazzar gave orders to bring in the gold and silver vessels that his predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem so that the king and his nobles, wives, and concubines could drink from them. So when they take the people of God out of Jerusalem and take them into captivity, they also ransack the temple. They take all the different things from the temple and bring it into Babylon. And so those things would have been considered sacred, things that were used in the temple for the Jewish people. Those would have been sacred. Now they are using them intentionally as kind of a provocative kind of in-your-face, we've won, we're going to use these for our drunken orgy party and use your sacred temple vessels for this. Okay, So it's a really provocative, blasphemous, kind of in-your-face thing that happens under the influence of the wine. So they brought the gold vessels that had been taken from the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, wives and concubines, drank from them. They drank the wine and praised their gods made of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. At that moment, the fingers of a man's hand appeared and began writing on the plaster of the king's palace wall next to the lampstand. This is where we get the the phrase, the writing is on the wall, if you've ever heard that phrase before. As the king watched the hand that was writing, his face turned pale and his thoughts so terrified him that he soiled himself, as you can imagine, and his knees knocked together. The king shouted to bring in the mediums, Chaldeans, and diviners. He said to these wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this inscription and give me its interpretation will be clothed in purple, have a gold chain around his neck, and have the third highest position in the kingdom. So all the king's wise men came in. But none could read the inscription or make its interpretation known to him. Then King Belshazzar became even more terrified. His face turned pale and his nobles were bewildered. Because of the outcry of the king and his nobles, the queen came, this would be the queen mother, came to the banquet hall. May the king live forever, she said. Don't let your thoughts terrify you or your face be pale. There is a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. In the days of your predecessor, he was found to have insight intelligence, and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods. Your predecessor, King Nebuchadnezzar, appointed him chief of the magicians, mediums, Chaldeans, and diviners. 
Your own predecessor, the king, did this because Daniel, the one the king named, Belteshazzar, was found to have an extraordinary spirit, knowledge and intelligence, and the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems. Therefore, summon Daniel, and he will give the interpretation. Daniel's been a part of the kingdom for a long time. The queen mother knows who he is and says, hey, don't freak out. There's a guy who's kind of famous for being able to interpret these things and solve these things. Call him in. Then Daniel was brought before the king. The king said to him, are you Daniel, one of the Judean exiles that my predecessor, the king, brought from Judah? I've heard that you have a spirit of the gods in you and that insight, intelligence, and extraordinary wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men and mediums were brought before me to read this inscription and make its interpretation known to me, but they could not give its interpretation. However, I have heard about you, that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Therefore, if you can read this inscription and give me its interpretation, you will be clothed in purple. I'm, that's probably never been a word that you've been offered. Hey, if you do this, I'll give you purple clothes. And you're like, eh, not much of incentive. <clears throat> and have the third highest position in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered the king, you may keep your gifts and your rewards to someone else. However, I will read the inscription for the king and make the interpretation known to him. Your majesty, the most high God gave sovereignty, greatness, glory, and majesty to your predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar. Because of the greatness he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages were terrified and fearful of him. He killed anyone he wanted and kept alive anyone he wanted. He exalted anyone he wanted and humbled anyone he wanted. But when his heart was exalted and his spirit became arrogant, this is from last week, he was deposed from his royal throne and his glory was taken from him. He was driven away from people. His mind was like an animal's. He lived with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like cattle and his body was drenched with dew from the sky until he acknowledged that the most high God is ruler over human kingdoms and sets anyone he wants over them. But you, his successor, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart even though you knew all this. Instead, you have exalted yourself against the Lord of the heavens. The vessels from his house were brought to you, and as you and your nobles, wives, and concubines drank wine from them, you praised the gods made of silver and gold, bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or understand. But you have not glorified the God who holds your life breath in his hand and who controls the whole course of your life. Therefore, he sent the hand, and this writing was inscribed. This is the writing that was inscribed. Mene, Mene, Tekel, and Parson. This is the interpretation of the message. Mene means that God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel means that you have been weighed on the balance and found deficient. Paris means that your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then Belshazzar gave an order and they clothed Daniel in purple, placed a gold chain around his neck, and issued a proclamation concerning him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, the king of the Chaldeans, was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom at the age of 62. Here's the story. Let's look at what we can learn, what the big picture is that we need to receive. First, what do we need to see about the world? 
Again, there's all of this repetition through all the chapters we've looked at, and it kind of is all in here at the same time. So I'm going to help us see the big picture of three different categories, what, what we need to see about the world, what we need to see about ourselves, what we need to see about God from this. But if you think it's really throughout all the chapters that we've looked at. So here's the first thing that we need to see about the world. If you want to be faithful in the middle of exile, if you want to be faithful in Denver, in Arvada, wherever you are, if you want to be faithful, here's what we need to see about the world. First thing is this. We need to expect difficulty. Just look at what it says. He brought in the gold vessels. We already looked at this, but they had been taken from the temple, the house of God. It gives us this blasphemous, awful, horrible thing that happened, right? And all throughout the chapters that we've looked at, they are confronted with situations that are difficult. You need to bow down to this idol. You need to eat and drink up from the king's table, pledging your loyalty to him. There are these uh, you know, dreams that the king has of the kind of these impossible situations that God's people are put in the middle of. There's always difficulty. That's the very first thing, that living in the middle of Babylon or living in exile, we should expect difficulty. We should expect that it's Babylon. We should expect that it's not Christian. Oftentimes, I think that we are surprised when we encounter the difficulty that we experience. We are surprised or we're hurt or we're offended by the pagan culture. When Daniel heard about what happened here, he didn't freak out and say, what? You were using the vessels from the temple? He knows. It's Babylon. This is what Babylon does. Babylon will be Babylon. I remember, I don't remember when it was, maybe last year, a couple years ago, uh, there's a musician, I'm not, I'm not uh, endorsing by saying his name, but uh, Lil, Lil Nas, okay? And he's a musician, and he had a really famous song called, uh, I think it was Old Country Road. And I remember seeing videos of elementary students and people dancing to it and thinking it was the coolest thing. And all, it was very popular with tons of kids. Then his next big hit that was coming out and kind of to, to garner some publicity around that, he took some blood from himself and, and put it in shoes that were, I can't remember if it was Nike or whoever uh, was putting them out, and it was kind of to endorse his next song, which in the music video, I saw a clip, didn't see the whole thing, but it's him giving a lap dance to Satan. So then parents are freaking out, like, what? You're supposed to be our role model, little Nas, for our kids. And he, rightfully so, says, you dumb parents, even in the old country road song, I'm singing about drugs and adultery. Listen to the lyrics. And he rightfully judges all of these parents saying, I'm, I'm just being who I am. So why do I bring up little Nas in this sermon? Uh, <laughs> because he uh, is my role model, and I need to confess that. <laughs> because old country road is amazing. No, because, because it was so shocking to people that he was being who he was. And yet we should expect that living in Babylon, people are going to be aligned with Babylon. This is what we should expect. We shouldn't be shocked and surprised if you hear that your kids are being taught certain things at schools. We shouldn't be shocked and surprised when the media portrays certain things that are wrong. We shouldn't be shocked and surprised by that. This is where we live. So I'm not saying that you should be happy with it or that you should be okay with it, 
But so often there's this surprise and this outrage, like, how could this happen? Sometimes it even happens within our own families, that when people, if, if you have family that are not Christians and, and they say certain things or they believe certain things about you, we can feel so like, oh, how could you think that? How could you believe that? But if they're not Christians, then they don't share our values, they don't share our God, they don't share our beliefs, and of course they are going to think that we are odd and strange and weird. And of course they are going to do things that we think are odd and strange and weird. So we shouldn't be surprised by the difficulty that we find in Babylon. We shouldn't be surprised. It, we, it is something that we should expect. It's something that we should believe is the norm. And I think that's a little bit hard sometimes for Americans. In some other cultures, they know that. They expect that. If you're a Christian in China, if you're a Christian in Turkey, if you're a Christian in Iran, you expect that the culture is hostile to your beliefs and values. You, you believe that. You know that. You're not shocked by it. But the same should be true of us. We should not be shocked by what we find. You need to know that there's going to be sin around you. You need to know that there's going to be pressure to conform to the sin and values around you. You need to know that you are different if you are a Christian. So oftentimes as Christians, we try so hard not to be different. If you are a Christian, you will be and are and considered different. You live in a culture that is not ultimately your home. This is what Jesus said, by the way. Jesus said, if the world hated me, then of course it's going to hate you. Jesus was the, the most perfect human that ever existed, and they killed him. He was as loving as it gets, as kind as it gets, as gentle as it gets. He was in the middle of the world, and they killed him. So he says, if they hated me, you shouldn't expect that they're just going to be like, oh man, you're so great about you. You're not Jesus. So we should expect that as we live in the world, that we are going to have difficulty, that there's going to be pressure, that there's going to be sin, that there's going to be suffering, that there's going to be loss that we experience as Christians. We should expect that. That's the first thing. All throughout these stories and in this chapter, we see once again that Babylon is Babylon. They're just doing what Babylon does. Second thing that we need to see about the big picture of our world is that the best wisdom of the world ultimately fails. You've seen this time and again, if you've been here for all of them. The king shouted to bring in the mediums, Chaldeans, and diviners, but none of them could read the inscription or make its interpretation known. This is what you've seen happen, again, multiple times throughout these stories, that all the best people are brought in to give an interpretation, all the people are brought in, but ultimately, it doesn't quite work. If you look at today, all of the best wisdom of the world ultimately fails. All of the best wisdom. And I'm not saying that the world doesn't have any wisdom. I mean, the world has wisdom that can create roads and can help in, you know, build boats and can do all sorts of things. There's good wisdom. God's truth is God's truth. And so people are able to tap into it and be able to create and to be able to lead and do all sorts of things. But ultimately, the best wisdom of the world will fail. The best wisdom of this world will fail. That's something that we need to keep as a big picture in mind. 
when we find ourselves in a culture that doesn't share the beliefs, values, practices, God that we have, that ultimately the best wisdom will fail. I'll give you a couple examples. If you think about the way that our world handles money, we are a very, in, in Denver, in Arvada, in America, very consumeristic, materialistic culture. And yet we are told that we should be. We are, we are fed ads nonstop all the time. Our materialism is encouraged. Our consumerism is encouraged nonstop. We are constantly told to buy things. We are constantly told to make more money and spend more money. Constantly told to do that. And yet, we have to print money to live and survive as a country. And our, think about this. What if you were trillions of dollars in debt? I mean, isn't that wild to think that we are trillions of dollars in debt as a country? Isn't that just... Doesn't, I mean, wouldn't... Wouldn't you like to at least be billions of dollars in debt? I mean, it's, it's crazy to think how much debt we have as a country. Something is broken, right? You've got all these amazing economists, all these amazing financial gurus and billionaires that are in our culture, right? We've got people that are amazing with money, whoever it is that you follow or think. I mean, people that are amazing. And yet, our country is more in debt than you are. And yet, it's, it's broken, right? We're told to buy, spend, consumer debt is rising. I mean, it's, it's something is off. Something is broken in it. Think about sexuality. Not too hard. But think about sexuality, okay? That it's, it's obviously broken also. Our culture has told us since the 1960s, be sexually liberated. Be sexually free. We looked at this back in the series in Proverbs about the, the kind of idea of sexual positivity. That as long as there's consent Everything is good with sex, that that's the main value. You should feel good about your sexuality, you should, and just do whatever you want and be really positive about it as long as you are in a consensual relationship. And every song is filled with sex. Every show is filled with sex. It's hard to watch a commercial and not, I mean, you want this car, it'll help you get laid. You want this deodorant, especially if it's Axe, it'll help you get laid. You want, uh, if you drink this drink, it'll, I, was, I saw a commercial for a bottle of wine. It's like, that looks like a good bottle of wine. Oh, and I can sleep with my neighbor if I have that bottle of wine. That was what the advertisement was. The neighbor from 38A, I think is what it was. Uh, it's, it's everything. You want this toothbrush? Great. It'll help you get laid. Whatever it is, literally, is connected to sex. It's filled in our shows, our songs, all over the media, right? We are a hyper-sexualized culture, and we're told that that's great and good but aren't we super sexually broken too? I mean, the whole Me Too movement shouldn't have come as a surprise to Christians. We should expect our culture is so whack sexually that of course there's all sorts of dark and awful things that are happening. From Bill Cosby to Bill Clinton to even recently Bill Murray. Stay away from Bill. That's the message. <laughs> Bill Murray by the way, who is, I watched a documentary on him. This is kind of a side note. How much time do I have? Okay, good. I've got plenty of time. Uh, Bill Murray. Bill Murray, who there's documentaries made on Bill Murray, how he's like everybody's hero. He's so awesome. He shows up at like parties. Just if you, if you lived where he lived, he just shows up, starts bartending at like Austin, Texas, just shows up. 
starts bartending. People are like, wow, Bill Murray, it's cool. There's all these kind of like urban legend stories about Bill Murray. He just shows up at random things. He could be here today. And he just kind of shows up and he hangs out. And he was like the everyday man, really cool, generous, kind, pays for the bar tab for everybody, hang, comes to your random birthday party, shows up. It's like, man, Bill Murray, he just shut off my screen. He's here. He's hacking into it. And, and then now, recently, the last couple weeks, it's been all over the news. He's another pervert. It's, it's sexually broken culture. It's a totally sexually broken culture. The amount of stuff that came out with Me Too, and I'm sure will still come out, the amount of celebrities and people that were thought to be like, oh, these are great, you know, awesome in some sense, you know, these are the the people that care about justice and progressive and, and really totally sexually broken. The amount of abuse, I mean, I, I know the statistics on sexual abuse. Many of you have dealt with that. The amount of abuse, insane. But we should expect that in the sexually broken culture that we have. I'll give you one last one. <clears throat> Mental health, our culture is filled with kind of talk and recommendation and encouragement to care for, have self-care, care for yourself, and to um, value yourself, lots of conversation around self-esteem and self-worth and all of those things. I'm not, don't hear me saying all those things are bad, but a lot of conversation about all that. And yet, how's it going? Our culture is the most depressed, most anxious that it's ever been. More money, more use of pills than have ever been used. It's crazy. If you look at the pharmaceutical companies and how much money they're making on anti-anxiety medicine and anti-depressant, I mean, it's through the roof. So something is obviously off that the best wisdom of our culture, even if they're able to diagnose problems and say, look, people are struggling with a lot of stuff, something about the solutions are obviously off. No matter how many times the mediums and the Chaldeans and the sorcerers are called in, something of the best wisdom that the culture can offer doesn't quite work, can't quite make it happen. So here's the second thing we need to see about our world. I'm trying to get this Bill Murray problem fixed up here. <clears throat> um, it has insight. Our culture has insight but it's never full. It has wisdom, but it can never totally deliver. Which, listen, even if you're not a Christian, if you just imagine a world where people do not totally align their wisdom and values and beliefs with God, and if there is a God, indeed, the God of the Bible, then wouldn't it make sense that the culture's wisdom is never gonna quite be able to fulfill? If we have said we have separated ourselves from this, if this is God's revelation of who he is and his wisdom, and we have said, I'm separating myself from this, doesn't it make sense that we might be able to have bits and pieces of wisdom, but never really the whole picture? This is what we find in our world. This is what we need to see about our world. This is what we need to see about Babylon. Third thing that I may not be able to show you on the screen of what we need to see about I will. What we need to good job. Good job, guys. This is what we need to see about our world is that these kingdoms and the kingdoms of the world will ultimately pass. Here's what he said. Daniel said, God is ruler over human kingdoms. God has numbered the days of your kingdom. And at the end, Darius the Mede received 
the kingdom. You've got Nebuchadnezzar, you've got Belshazzar, and now it's a totally different, now it's the Medes and the Persians that have overtaken. Babylon is done. That these kingdoms pass. These kingdoms pass, ultimately. Now, I want to show you this really quick, too. This is a, this is a cylinder in the British Museum. I don't know exactly how you say his name, but the Nabonidus, Nabonidus, something, uh, cylinder. And it's, it's interesting because Belshazzar is a character. I, I've been kind of bringing up some of these little historical things from museums and things to help you understand that um, this is not kind of... Sometimes when people look at the Bible, especially the Old Testament, we can think, oh, this is sort of set in like a mythical world, Lord of the Rings kind of world, you know, and it's just kind of this ancient myth kind of stuff. And uh, that's not what it is. It, there, it's rooted in history. The writers of the Bible didn't view themselves as trying to create Middle Earth. They didn't view themselves as trying to create a land of dwarfs and wizards. And, and I don't know if you've seen the new Lord of the Rings, but uh, elves. And, you know, I, the new Lord of the Rings series on Amazon, I don't love it uh, because the writing is pretty bad. I'm a big Lord of the Rings fan. But there's a Puerto Rican elf in it, which I was pretty happy because I kind of view myself as a Puerto Rican elf. Um, and so uh, that, I thought that was cool. So the rest of the Lord of the Rings like, yeah, but yes, there's a Puerto Rican elf. So um, anyway, I, I think this said something about Puerto Rican elves. No, it's um, here. So here's what I'm going to say. Belshazzar, for, for a long time, people critical of the Bible would have said, if you look at Babylonian history, there was no Belshazzar. There's a lot of stuff for Nebuchadnezzar, but there was nothing for Belshazzar. And so people said, there you go. See, the Bible's just kind of making it up. It's, it's just a Puerto Rican elf. It's just a fairy tale. It's just kind of a character that they created. And that was, that was what people thought for a long time, that were critical of the Bible. And then, kind of late 1800s, they found the Nabon, the Nabon, the, this cylinder, okay? They, I don't speak Babylonian. Give me a break, okay? So they, they found this cylinder that mentions Belshazzar. And it mentions him as co-regent with his father, Nabi. It mentions him as co-king with him. And it mentions uh, that he reigned, that Belshazzar was king. And that happened, and then people were like, oh, look, I guess the Bible wasn't crazy after all. And it's also interesting that because he was co-regent with his father, because his father kind of left for 10 years to a different place, so he was appointed as co-king with his dad, since he uh, left, that would also make sense that Belshazzar says he will reward Daniel with the third highest place in the kingdom. He couldn't give him second place because it was kind of one and two, him and his dad. So there had to be a third place that was given to Daniel instead of uh, second place because it was already one and two that were kind of together. So this was something that people were kind of critical of of the Bible until later 1800s. They found this and said, oh, I guess the Bible's not crazy after all. So that's just kind of a side note. But what I want you to see is that from Daniel and throughout all the chapters that we've looked at, it says over and over again, these kingdoms will pass. These kingdoms will pass. Now, listen, that's helpful for us. Whether you have a lot of hope in certain political candidates or certain kind of uh, policies or laws, if you have a lot of hope, if this person gets in office, if this person is able to change these laws, if you've got a lot of hope in that, we probably shouldn't put too, home, too much hope because it won't last. Policies change. Kingdoms change. And if you've got a lot of fear or a lot of anger about the policies 
or you've got a lot of fear, a lot of anger about certain political leaders, it won't last. These kingdoms don't last. And I'm not saying you should be apathetic. I'm not saying that you should just say, yeah, so whatever happens, happens. I'm not saying that. We should be good citizens, and we should vote, and we should try to see things changed. We should do that. But it won't last. These kingdoms don't ultimately last. That is one of the recurring themes of the book of Daniel. It's, one, it's the prophecies that were given to Daniel, that they're, you're going to have this empire, and it's going to fall. You're going to have this empire, and it's going to fall. And that is always going to happen. So here's what we need to see about the world. We live here. We live here. But sometimes it's easy to forget. This isn't home. This isn't home. So don't be surprised about the values. Don't be surprised about the problems. Don't be surprised about the failure of wisdom. And don't link too closely or fear too much the kingdoms that we experience because they will pass. Second thing, what do we need to see about our place in the world? That's the big picture of the world. What do we need to see about our place in the world, about our involvement, about what we are called to? And the first thing is that we are called to be engaged. He says about Daniel, I've heard about you, that you can do certain things. And then he appoints him at the end to third ruler in the kingdom. You don't see Daniel as this person that is totally uninvolved and isolated from what's happening in Babylon. He's given his life, even though he was brought in as a captive, he's given his life to serving in Babylon. He's given his life to being involved. He's given his life to serving in the political realm, to being one of the high up administrators in the kingdom. He's given his life and been engaged in Babylon. We can be tempted as Christians to just kind of isolate ourselves and exit from the world and just think, okay, that's Babylon. I'm a Christian, so I'm just going to kind of do my own thing. And yet, what we see in Daniel is that faithfulness means not disdaining the culture, not hating the culture, but loving and serving where God has put us. That's so important. Listen, God has put you where God's put you. He's put you in your neighborhood. He's put you in your job. He's put you in certain relationships. And our call is to be engaged. We looked at in the book of Titus over the summer that our calling is to be devoted to good, to bringing good wherever we are. That is our calling, not to separate, not to isolate, not to leave, but to be the very best citizens, as Daniel was, to be engaged, loving, serving. If we ignore that and think that what we're supposed to do as Christians is just exit, then we ignore God's wisdom in saying, my plan is to put you here to love, to serve, to be a part, to do well, to represent me. We're called to be engaged. And we're called to have that engagement be done with truth, boldness, truth, and respect. To be done with boldness and humility. To be done with courage and with kindness. To be done with both of those things at the same time. A truth and a respect. Look at what we see here. He, in talking to Belshazzar, while he's drunk having an orgy, calls him your majesty. And yet at the same time says the truth, doesn't hold anything back, tells him, you have not humbled your heart, even though you knew all this. Let me give you the interpretation. 
Your kingdom is going to be taken away from you. God has judged you. He is respectful and bold at the same time. It's the same thing we see with Daniel as Daniel talks to Nebuchadnezzar. It's the same thing we saw with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Even as they said they wouldn't bow down to the statue, there's truth but respect all throughout these stories. This is what our posture should be in the middle of Babylon. It should be truth and respect at the same time. Imagine how hard it would be for Daniel in this situation. Like, hey, can you come read the interpretation? And the interpretation says, the king is guilty, God's going to judge him, and his kingdom's going to be taken away from him. Like, uh, I don't know if I want to give that interpretation. Like, I don't know, you know, who knows what it says? It could mean a lot of different things. There's a lot of different interpretations. People disagree. You could Google this thing and Google this thing, and, you know, we never know exactly what it means. He could have just kind of a coward's approach, but he's bold, and he's very clear, and he says exactly what God says, not more, not adding his own opinion and his own flair to it, not less, not hiding anything, but he is clear with here is what God says. He doesn't hide anything. Listen, are you honest? Even when people ask you about the differences in your life or about your beliefs, or about what you value, or about what you believe about God, or about what God teaches, are you honest? Are you willing to lose at the cost of being honest? Are you willing when the culture's wisdom fails to share God's wisdom when called upon? Are you willing to actually be bold and speak truth? But with respect. Sometimes I think about, uh, as a kid, watched a lot of, um, and I know they still have shows like this, I don't watch them anymore, but as a kid, I watched a lot of like 2020, Barbara Walters, you know, she'd be, and I always remember, she'd be interviewing people like the crate, like she'd interview Saddam Hussein or people that are these villains, right? And she'd interview them. And I, I would just, you know, Barbara's asking like, so Saddam, and just imagine, why doesn't she just get up and go, and kill him and, and then like run away? But she is able to, with respect, talk to awful people. That's what Daniel's doing. He's sitting and saying, your majesty. By the way, Saddam called himself Nebuchadnezzar III or something like that. Um, so anyways, um, <clears throat> Barbara could have taken him out. Uh, he, Daniel is able to say, your majesty, even to these people that are totally blaspheming God, while he's holding the cup from the temple, while he's getting drunk and has all of his concubines around, and don't, you know, it's presenting to us, I keep saying an orgy, that is what it's presenting to us. It's presenting to us a very sensuous, drunken feast happening. And in the middle of that, he's saying, your majesty, filled with respect, like Barbara Walters, filled with respect, able to handle that with dignity, humility. The same thing that Daniel did multiple times throughout his life. That's what our calling is. What if, we could, what if you could be absolutely truthful and bold about your faith and your Christianity and what you believe, and yet done in such a way that you could still say, your majesty, and done in such a way that you could leave that conversation with that person still feeling respected, even if there's a lot of disagreement. That is what our calling is to be. And then... Third, what we need to see about our place in the world is that there is throughout all of these stories and here a loyalty to God. Daniel's offered these benefits. 
He's offered, I'm going to put, I'm going to clothe you in purple and put a gold chain around your neck, which I have an image in my mind, an old image of MC Hammer, who has, was wearing like this purple suit and big old gold chain. So that's, he says, Daniel, I'm going to, I'm going to pimp you out and make you look amazing and make you the third ruler of the kingdom. And Daniel says, no, I'm good. You can keep it. Now, he, he ends up receiving it anyway, only because it's forced upon him. But Daniel says, I don't need that. Daniel says, I am going to serve you and speak the truth to you because I'm loyal to God, not because I'm trying to get certain benefits or get certain things. Listen, conforming to the culture around us is easy. You're going to be pressured all the time to conform in what you believe and to conform in what you do, conform in how you think. That's easy. But Daniel stays loyal to God. Even if you look at this, which I, it happens throughout some of these stories as well, he has to summon Daniel. Why is that? He's not there. Even though he brings in all of the magicians and mediums and Chaldeans and Daniel's the head, he has to bring Daniel in. And that's the same thing that happened to, at all of those different occasions where Daniel goes in and interprets the dream. That's what has to happen. It's the same thing that had to happen to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They had to catch them because they weren't there when the idol worship was even happening. Because there is a posture that we should have of non-participation because there's a loyalty to God. Hey, Daniel, we're having a big giant feast, a big party. Daniel doesn't, he's just not there. Now, it's not the, op, it's not the opposite of what I was saying of we need to be engaged. Daniel knows when we say yes and when we say no. And when it interferes with being loyal to God, Daniel is often not there. He just doesn't show up. He has to be summoned. When he's offered the benefits, he doesn't even want them. He is able to deny the pleasure that is offered to him because Daniel is living distinct. He's living distinct. He is living distinct, not because he's just this big righteous person, but because he knows first and foremost from the first day he was in Babylon, I'm loyal to God. My loyalty to the king, my loyalty to country is not what's first. It's my loyalty to God. There is a pure, devoted faith that says my heart belongs to God. Because even though he's in Babylon, he still is Daniel. I love how he says it to him. Are you Daniel, one of the Judean exiles? Think about Daniel's in his 80s now. He's not going by Belteshazzar. He still is known as Daniel. He still remembers where he came from and who he is. That's still who he is. Daniel means God is my judge. And that is still who he is. He is still living before God, saying my whole life is for him, governed by him, led by him. This is what our calling is. Is this what your life is? Is your life to seek to honor God, obey him, worship him first, foremost, above anything else? Is that what leads your decision making as you try to figure out what your place in the world is? This is what it was for Daniel. As you look at the picture of our place in the world, here's what it's not. It's not isolation, just kind of running away. It's not indignation, just this, I'm mad, I'm frustrated about the world around me. And it's not integration, just, all right, I'm going to fit in. 
It is what Jesus calls being in the world, but not of the world. It's what Jesus calls us to, that we are to be present. We're to be faithful where we are, and yet distinct because of a loyalty to God. The last question is, what do we need to see about our God in the world? What do we need to see about who God is that helps us with all of these things? Again, these themes are out throughout the whole book. Here's the first one. We need to see that God is in control. The most high God's ruler over human kingdoms. And I love this sentence. He tells him, the God who holds your life breath in his hands and who controls the whole course of your life. God's in control. And you know what we need to see about God as we live in this world? God is in control. He's in control of the world. He's in control of them, whoever that is to you. And he's in control of us. God is in control. That's such a simple statement and yet very powerful and something that we very much need. I, I don't love a lot of Christian phrases, but this is one that I have always enjoyed that we don't know Maybe some of you have heard this. We don't know what the future holds, but we know who holds the future. I don't know what my future holds, but I know who holds my future. That's what Daniel says. He says, this is the God who holds your life breath in his hands, who directs the whole course of your life. What if we believe that? What if we knew that? I'm not saying that's easy. We were at a a funeral for friends on Friday of a 18-year-old boy who died of cancer. So there's all sorts of things that we don't understand, right? You've had them in your life. I've had them in my life. There's all sorts of things that we don't get, that we don't understand, that we ask why, that we're confused about. But God is good, and he holds the whole course of your life in his hands. He holds the whole course of the world in his hands. And if we believe that, that God is in control, That gives a lot of peace. It gives a lot of confidence. It gives a lot of hope. It gives a lot of ability to be bold, to be gracious, to be a part, to be distinct. It it helps with what we need. We don't know what our future holds, but we know the one that holds us, and he's the same one that held on to the cross for us. That's the one that holds our future. So God is in control. That's the first thing we need to see. The second thing we need to see is that God is involved. That he says, the fingers of a man's hand appeared and begin writing. God shows up supernaturally. And he says of Daniel that he has a spirit of the holy gods in him. And he has wisdom like the gods. So you see God showing up in these supernatural ways, writing on walls. And you see God showing up constantly in Daniel's life, filling him, empowering him to do what God has called him to do. God is involved. That's another big truth that we need. If you and I are self-reliant and just think, all right, God's there and I've got to live my life and figure it out, that's a practical atheism that doesn't believe that God actually shows up and does stuff. But all throughout the book of Daniel, it's wanting us to see that God is involved. Yeah, we're in Babylon. Yeah, we're in a world that can be hard and difficult, but God shows up. He delivers from the furnace. He helps interpret dreams. He helps a diet of vegetables and water create create the healthiest people. He gives wisdom. He gives understanding. He writes on walls. God shows up in ways that makes the king poop himself. 
It literally says that the, the, in the King James, if you have a King James, and it's actually more literal translated. I wrote it down because it's funny. It says, the joints of his loins were loosed. That's such a great phrase. That's what we need to start saying. To, you know, where are you? I'm just loosing my, my loin joints, you know. But God shows up in ways that can make kings poop themselves. That's powerful. God shows up in ways, like what if we believe that God was so involved in our lives that he could do what we see here? God can. God does. I'm not saying it's always a hand that shows up on the wall, but God is involved in your life. What if we therefore brought our impossible situations to him? What if we therefore brought our difficulties to him, brought our challenges of living in Babylon to him? God never expected us to live through Babylon going, I better figure this out. I better have the wisdom. I better have the courage. I better have the confidence. God says, I'm involved. What if we believe that and asked him to therefore show up? Third is that God is judge. God has numbered the days, he tells him. You've been weighed on the balance and found deficient. Your kingdom has been divided and given away. God is judge. God is judge. Another little historical tidbit for you, that while this was happening, this big feast, historians, non-biblical historians, actually record the very same thing. This is from uh, Herodotus, who is an ancient historian. This is pre-Bible, who wrote this. The Persians took them, about Babylon, unawares, and because of the great size of the city, the inhabitants of the middle part knew nothing of it. All this time, they were dancing and celebrating a holiday, which happened to fall then, until they learned the truth only too well. History records that Babylon fell while they were having this big giant party and feast. Again, exactly what the Bible says. It's recorded in histories before the Bible even tells us. So, God is judge. Listen, this is probably the hard part of the text that we need to understand about our God in the world. But the days of your life are numbered. And the days of our life will be weighed as well. And when the scale of your life is weighed, and when your days are numbered, ultimately, for every one of us, our kingdom will be taken from us. That's true for everybody. God's judgment will come to each of us and our kingdom will be taken. That will happen to all of us. And so we have to decide what will happen. Will I be found wanting like Belshazzar? Or will there be something else on my scales that allows me to experience God's mercy and his grace? which isn't all the good that we can do, but it's Jesus and his grace and his righteousness that makes the scales tip. Because you and I have all sinned. You and I have, have all been found wanting and deficient. All of us have guilt before God. And one day our kingdom will be taken from us. But for those of us that have put our trust and our hope in Jesus, he has already paid the debt. He has already wiped the scales clean. And he has given us his righteousness as a gift so that we are found in God's sight perfect before him because of Jesus. God is judge, which is helpful for us. It's a helpful truth because it means, it means that we shouldn't, we shouldn't 
freak out when we see all the pain in the world around us. We can grieve, but we can also rest knowing God will take care of it. It also means in our life where there is sin, we shouldn't linger on it. We shouldn't be like Belshazzar. Where there is sin, we should turn to God and confess to him. And here's the final thing, and I'll close, is that God rewards. It says they clothe Daniel in the purple, and he gets the chain, and he's made third ruler in the kingdom. All of these stories that we've looked at so far, every single chapter ends with reward given to those faithful to God. Now, here's, here's what that means. A lot of times in our life, that will be true. A lot of times in our life, God does reward our obedience. But a lot of times, it's not true. A lot of times, we obey God, and it leads to death, or it leads to loss. But no matter what, what it foreshadows is that Jesus says, the faithful are rewarded. That ultimately, in heaven, we are rewarded. And we are rewarded with life with him and knowing him. And we're rewarded with all that he is, even more. That we need to see about our God is that we don't lose when we follow him. We don't lose when we align ourselves with him. Ultimately, there is no loss in obedience. So we want to be faithful. You and I want to be faithful as we live in this world. Part of the way that we will do that is when we keep the right perspective on the world, on ourselves, and on who God is. There's no way to be faithful if we are zoomed in on the good or the bad and miss the whole picture that God has for us. To be faithful is to be full of faith in who God is. We have to keep the big picture if we want to be able to do that. We see more than Daniel saw. When we look at Jesus and when we take communion, we're going to remember who Jesus is in just a moment. If you're a Christian and didn't grab one of those little cups on the way in, you can grab one of those. When we take communion, we're remembering and seeing who Jesus is. See, Daniel saw some of the big picture, but we actually see the big picture even more clearly than he did. Because we look at Jesus' life and see him entering into the world and experiencing the full weight and evil of the world. When you look at the life of Jesus, you see this world is evil. It would kill God. When you look at the life of Jesus, though, you see that he loved it. God so loved the world. He gave his life to it. And you look at the life of Jesus, and we, we see what we are called to. We see the big picture of what we're called to. But when we look at Jesus, we see even more clearly. That's what we're called to. That's the faithfulness. That's the loyalty to God. That's the engagement with the world and yet distinctness. That's the friend of sinners and yet not a sinner. You look at Jesus, you get to see more clearly what we're called to. And you look at Jesus and you see more clearly who God is. Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Which is to say, when you see him, you see even more clearly the big picture of a God that is just and pays for sins. You see more clearly a God that is involved in the world, not separate from it, that would be incarnated in the world. You see more clearly a God who is filled with love, a God who is in control even when it seems that there's chaos. And you even see more clearly the God that rewards, even when it looks like it was all over and there was death, there's resurrection. And that's what he offers to us. When we take communion, we're remembering his body broken, his blood shed to give us life, to forgive us our sins. 
and to bring us into his family. So as you take communion, take time and confess where there's areas you need to confess. Ask for God's strength to move forward in what he has called us to do. Imagine this week and your life keeping the big picture in mind. What if we could do that? Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for your goodness to us, your grace to us. I thank you that you have loved us. God, I thank you that you are involved in this world. You're involved in our lives. You're in control. And that we can see the big picture looking at Daniel, but looking even more so at you, Jesus. Help us to keep that in mind and let it change our lives. In your name, Jesus. Amen.